So if someone were to ask you, what is your church about? How would you answer that? Or what is a church supposed to be about? Uh, Reminds me of a funny story of our youngest when she was really, really little and it was her birthday. And we were reading her birthday cards to her and one was talking about happy birthday to a special granddaughter and going on about granddaughter. Now, she was young enough that she was confused and as her cousin was reading the rest of the card and it said, happy birthday to, and before her cousin could read it out loud, she yelled out, me, because she knew that this birthday was about her. And she wondered, who is this granddaughter person who keeps butting in on my special day? So she knew that her birthday was about her, and she wanted to make sure that everybody knew about it. Well, our church is about Jesus. In fact, uh, Kent and I, who's uh, right here with me, he's running the video right now. We joke about a time that somebody came to our church, and we asked them how they uh, liked it, what they thought about it, and they said, yeah, it was good, but you sure talk about Jesus a lot. Now, I'm not sure that they meant it as a compliment, but we took it as a compliment because our church is all about Jesus. Now, I tell you that because as we are approaching the Easter season and in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are going to start a new series called King and Cross, which is based on the gospel of Mark in the beginning of the New Testament. It starts with four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the second gospel. It's the smallest gospel. We're going to be looking at that particular gospel in the weeks leading up to Easter. And we call it King and Cross because it talks about the two major aspects of Jesus' identity and his work, that he is the long-awaited king and that he is also the savior who goes to the cross for us. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in the weeks leading up to it. And it's important for us to understand and to focus on who Jesus is and what he has done and what it means for us because that is the key central core message for followers of Jesus, for his church, his congregation, his people. And we want to make sure that we understand that because it is possible for churches and followers of Jesus to get sidetracked and to make faith and church and what we do and our mission about something else? Do I really need to go through the different options? You probably, if you just think about churches that you know or churches that you've been a part of and how easy it is to get off track. And it's not what is written on the walls. It's how it is lived out in the halls. How do we live it out? You can have great doctrine, great statement of faith, but if a person comes into your congregation, becomes a part of your fellowship what would they say you're really all about? That's the question that we want to answer. And the way, the way that we want to answer it is that we are all about Jesus. So let's jump right into the introduction. This is Mark chapter one, verse one. It says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Already in the first verse, there's so much packed into this. Number one, it's this is the gospel. Some of your translations might say gospel. 
Gospel literally means good news. It is an announcement of news. What is it about? It is about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, which is the, uh, the Christ. That is the promised agent of God who is going to restore the kingdom of God and set everything right. And that he is also the son of God, pointing immediately to his divinity and his special character as the son of God. So there's so much to unpack. <clears throat> we'll talk a lot about all the different aspects of Jesus and his identity and what it means for us from this verse. But I just want to start out by emphasizing that it's very clear the good news, the gospel, the core of our message, the message of Jesus' church is all about Jesus. Jesus said the same kind of thing a little bit uh, later in ministry. This is from the Gospel of John. He's talking to uh, Bible scholars, to Pharisees, to people who study the scriptures. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. In other words, you're pouring over the Bible, you're pouring over the scriptures, and you're trying to find out what do we need to do? How do we need to live? All this kind of stuff. And in the process, they miss the entire point. Jesus says, but the scriptures point to me. In other words, the whole purpose of the Bible is to point you towards Jesus. And so we are talking about the gospel. And what we are saying is that the gospel is the good news about Jesus. It's the good news. It's not good advice. It is good news. And it is all about Jesus. So let's look together at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read to you for about the first half of the first chapter. It'll go pretty quickly, and then we'll focus in, not on, I'm not going to try to work through the whole thing because there's just too much there, but I want to give it in context, and then we'll focus on two particular aspects of this introduction to Mark. So let's read it together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, which is the region they were in, including the people, all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. 
As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. Later on, after Jesus was arrested, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you inspired Mark to record the gospel story and that it has preserved this eyewitness testimony all the way to our day. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would help us to understand your message, what it means for us, who it's about. And I pray, Lord, that we would, in faithful allegiance, turn our hearts towards you and that you would show us if there's any way that we are being unfaithful towards you and that you would drive this message home and speak to us each in exactly the way that we need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at it together. Now, I've already told you the bottom line, that the gospel is the good news about Jesus. And I want to emphasize that aspect, that it is good news, not good advice. Part of the, the one of the main resources that I'll be using for this series is Tim Keller's book, King's Cross. This is what it's called in the hardcover. It's been released in softcover now, and they changed the title. I don't know why, but it's called Jesus the King. But if you search for either of those, you will find that. And in one of those chapters, he makes a point that he's made many times before, which is that the gospel is not good advice. It's not just primarily something that you do or something, uh, some kind of advice to follow, but it, it is good, that it is good news to accept. And that good news is about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the promised one who uh, has come to set things right and restore the kingdom of God and also his unique identity as the son of God, that he is God in the flesh. And if you're looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, it is split up into the two, two major sections, the first half going through about chapter eight and the second half going through the end of the book in chapter 16. And it is split up in these two major sections where the first part is talking about Jesus as king or Messiah, and the second part in his role as the, on the cross as the son of God. And so that's why we're calling it King and Cross. That's why Tim Keller's book originally was called King's Cross, is that it's identifying these two major aspects of Jesus' identity. And each one, each section of the book culminates with a confession 
about who Jesus is. In the first half, it culminates in Mark chapter 8, where the disciples are together, and as they are walking along, he, Jesus, asks them, his disciples, who do people say that I am? Notice that he's focusing in on his identity. Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. By this time, John the Baptist had been killed. They're wondering if maybe he's, you know, John the Baptist reincarnated or something like that. Some say Elijah, Old Testament prophet. Others say you're one of the other prophets. So what they're basically saying is, people don't really know what to make of you, Jesus. They're, they, they know that you're kind of like a prophet. They know God seems to be at work in and through you, but there's not really agreement on who you are, your identity. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And that's the question that is going to be constantly coming up as we go through this this series, the question that every one of us has to answer. We have to answer the question, who do you say I am? You're going to have to come to some kind of conclusion about who Jesus is, and then that will determine, in large part, your response to him. So that's why Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? There are all these competing opinions out there But ultimately what matters is what's your judgment? How are you going to receive me? How are you responding to me? Who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are God's anointed one is what that literally means. The one who is God's agent on earth. The one who is going to restore the kingdom of God. So that is Jesus as king, as God's anointed king. And that's uh, the culmination of the first part of the book. And then the culmination of the second part of the book, as again, appropriate as we lead up into Easter, is the crucifixion and resurrection. And there's another confession made by an outsider. Now, Peter is the ultimate insider. He's one of the disciples, arguably the leader and one of the most important of the disciples. And then later, there's a confession made by a complete outsider. He's a Roman, not one of the Jewish people. He is a centurion. He's part of the occupying force. And he makes his confession at the foot of the cross. But in order for you to understand how revolutionary and amazing this is, I mean, this one was because Jesus was not the picture of the Messiah that they were expecting. And certainly it is an amazing affirmation that the centurion makes because he is an outsider. Uh, But just so that you get a sense of what Uh, the starting point was for most of the Roman soldiers. I just want to read to you this little part of the Passion Week experience when Jesus was on trial and coming up to the cross. This is Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him, Jesus, in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. 
Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. They were mocking him and his, uh, his people by dressing him in this way and giving him false adulation. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. So this was just to give you a little bit of an insight into how the Romans viewed the people that they had oppressed and how Jesus was treated as the supposed king of the Jews. But then there's a Roman centurion at the cross and watching Jesus over several hours, seeing the interaction with the crowd, seeing how the, his own people in some cases were mocking him, and then seeing how he died, it comes to this point. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, it says, When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Now, in order to understand how radical an uh, affirmation that was for the Roman centurion, uh, first, I would point out that the way that the book of Mark starts this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, was the same kind of language. The word gospel was not a church word or a faith word. It just simply meant an announcement, a proclamation of good news. And so there's an inscription from that general time period. This is the, the gospel, the good news about Caesar Augustus. In other words, whenever the, there was a new emperor born or they had a tremendous victory in battle, they would send out a euangelion, a good news proclamation, a gospel proclamation telling about the victory that was won. And over and over again, they shifted from a republic into worship of the emperor as a divine being. And so it was in common usage to refer to the emperor as the son of God because they wanted to encourage worship and to see him as divine. So here you have this Roman centurion watching a member of a subjugated people dying on a cross, being executed by the Roman authorities. But he is so moved and so impacted by what he sees in Jesus that he declares, surely, truly, this man was the son of God. So you can kind of split the gospel of Mark into these two main sections. The first half, as his own people his disciples, his inner circle, eventually come to the conclusion that he is God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And then the, in the events leading up to and including the cross, we see a re realization that he is the divine son of God as well. You're understanding his 
identity. So let's go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. In other words, he's going to proclaim God's news, his good news, his news of his victory. And this is the content of Jesus' proclamation, his preaching, summed up. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. In other words, all those things in the prophecies and the scriptures that promised that God was going to come and he was going to rescue his people and he was going to set things right and he was going to send an anointed king who is going to be his agent on earth, that time promised has now come at last. We're right on the precipice. It is, it's happening as we speak. What's happening? The kingdom of God, God's rule and reign is breaking out in and among you right now. The kingdom of God is near. So what's your response? Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. In other words, if God is going to rule, then you need to get right and you need to get ready and you need to understand, accept, believe, trust in that good news. And again, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. So before this is over, I want you to have this clear in your mind, that the gospel is not good advice, but good news. And I want you to have a good sense of what the content of that is. So if somebody asks you, what's your church about? You'd be able to say, well, it's all about Jesus. And then what about Jesus? Well, the content of the gospel, and this is a shorthand that I've used, been helpful to me for several years now, I'll share it with you. And that is that the gospel is who Jesus is, that's his identity, what Jesus did, that's his work. So he's the king, what Jesus did, he went to the cross, and then what it means for us, that's the good news that is announced. Who Jesus is, he is the fully divine son of God, he is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, he's the one that God is using to set things right and is divine himself. What Jesus did, he lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died a death he did not deserve. And then what it means for us, we are now able, because of what Jesus did and who he is, we are able to receive a forgiveness that we could not own, uh, could not earn, and adoption into God's family. We can be citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to kind of tease that out a little bit more. And I've been reading this book, and there's going to be a key quote from it. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and talking about what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's by Matthew W. Bates. And there's a particular phrase in there that has really stuck with me. And what he's basically saying is that uh, he's trying to give us a better understanding of what it means to be saved by faith. And he's expanding or elaborating, would be a better word, elaborating on this concept of what faith is by saying you could liken it to faithfulness. So if Jesus is a king and we recognize him as 
king, then we are giving our allegiance to him and we are being faithful to him. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that we acknowledge who he is as king and then we are going to be faithful to him as our king. So here's the money quote. It says, the allegiance concept welds mental agreement, professed fealty, and embodied loyalty. Mental agreement, professed fealty, and embodied loyalty. Let's unpack that a little bit. Mental agreement, that's describing what we think, and that's our theology. Now, whether you recognize it or not, you are, you are a theologian. You have thoughts about God. You have a particular take on God. For some people, it might be, I don't believe there is a God. They are atheists. Uh, they, that's, but that is their theology. So you have a particular take on God. So when you are following Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, you are giving mental agreement to who Jesus is that he is who he said he is and that he was able to do what he said he would do. That's your theology. But it's so important that we not stop there. For many people, this is where having faith in Jesus stops. It's just a mental agreement. But the scriptures make very clear, the apostles taught this very clearly, that that's not enough. You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. So yes, I have mental agreement. There is one God. And he's actually quoting there the, the prime statement of faith for, the, for his people. And this is one that we looked at last week uh, when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment. There's only one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, he's quoting that. You believe that there's one God. That's your statement of faith. And then he's kind of funny because James is kind of straightforward. He says, good for you. Great. Glad to hear it. And then he goes on to explain why that's not enough. Just that mental agreement isn't enough. He says, even the demons believe this. All right. So your theology now, if you believe in God, you believe that there's one God, great. You've now raised your theology to the level of the demonic. You know, even the de- demons believe this. And then he adds this subscript, and they tremble in terror. You see, it's not just enough to have mental agreement. You have to go beyond that. So what's the next phase? Professed fealty. What's it say? That's what we say. It's the things that we say, not just what we think, but what we confess. And this is our confession. And that's why uh, in Romans chapter 10, when Paul is explaining the gospel, he says, this is how it works. This, that message, he's talking about the gospel message, the, the good news about Jesus, is the very message about faith that we preach. So again, he's talking about, okay, this is our faith. This is what we believe, but we also need to confess it. We need to own it publicly as well. Romans 10, 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, if there is an alignment, your heart is right, what you believe is right, your theology is good, great. You need to add to that your confession. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, that's how salvation, that's how rescue happens. 
And of course, that's why we emphasize when you cross the line of faith, which is not automatic, you don't, you don't get born a Christian. You might have been born into a Christian household. You might have attended church since you were a child. But until you cross the line of faith, until you say yes to Jesus, until you profess your faith, profess your fealty, to Jesus, then you still have work to do. And the way that we symbolize that, celebrate it, formalize it, is through how Jesus prescribed baptism. Because when you are baptized, you are openly declaring your faith in Christ and your theology about him. But then even that is not complete. It's our theology, what we think, it's our confession, it's what we say, but it's also embodied loyalty. Embodied loyalty. What does that mean? These are the things that we do. I've thought about using the word actions, but I like decisions better. Embodied loyalty is what we do, and that reflects our decisions. So, in other words, if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you recognize him as Lord and King, then you're going to do what he says. That's why whenever I present the gospel, I always include not just that Jesus is Savior and you're saying yes to his forgiveness, but also that Jesus is Lord and you're seeing, saying yes to his kingship, to his lordship, that he's the boss, that he gets to call the shots. So if you think that you are following Jesus just because you believe certain things about Jesus, but when it comes to what you do and the decisions that you make and you say, well, you know, I know what Jesus says about this, but I'm going to do this. I know that I should probably do this because that's God's way of doing things, but I'm going to do it this way. Then that is not having faith or being faithful to Christ. Because faithfulness, allegiance, includes what we do. It is the includes the decisions that we make. And this isn't just me saying this. This is the constant testimony of the scriptures as well. Here's the Apostle John. If someone claims, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commands, he's obviously a liar. Uh, this is the second week in a row where we've pointed out where they say, you know, this doesn't work. You're lying if you say this. I know him well, but I don't follow his commands. I know him well. I know what he says about forgiveness, but I'm not going to, and I just can't forgive that person. I know what he says about how to handle money, but I'm not going to do that. I know what Jesus taught about our sexual ethic, but I know better, and I'm going to choose this over here you're wrong. It, you, you can't say, I know him well, and then not he keep his commands. That makes you into a liar. And then to sum it up, he puts it this way. His life doesn't match his words. His life doesn't match his words. Professed fealty has to turn into actions and decisions. And then uh, for a little bit of an encouragement, because this is beginning to sound a little bit like, well, you know, pull yourself up by your bootsteps, obey, obey, obey. That's not the way the Christian life works. Because Here's what it means for us. Because Jesus is who he says he is, because he did what he said he would do, going to the cross, dying 
on behalf of our sins. Now, he makes that forgiveness freely available to us and gives us his Holy Spirit to bring us alive spiritually and to give us the power and the desire to do what he wants us to do. This isn't a, now you go and and do better. It is, you can't do it. You need to surrender to Jesus and allow him to infuse your life with his power and his ability because there's only one person who can successfully live the Christian life and that's Jesus Christ. And unless you have Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit living and residing in you, you are going to be destined for failure. That's why the Apostle John can say in the very same letter, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, it's not putting a burden on you. It is empowering you to do what he wants you to do. He goes on, for every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith, through our faith. You see, when you turn in faith to Jesus, when you acknowledge that he is who he said he is, that he is the Lord, that he is now ruling and reigning and that he deserves our allegiance and our faithfulness and our faith, when you turn to him and recognize the work that he did on the cross, that his death paid the penalty for your sins and my sins, then we have, through his victory, defeated the world and achieved that victory by our faith in Christ. And so that's why I will encourage you to commit your life to Jesus. Again, it's not automatic. It is a decision that you make to recognize who Jesus is, what he did, and then to say, I want that to count for me. That is the essence of our story. That is the focus of our church. We are a biblically based church. Jesus said, the whole point of the Bible is to point you towards me. We are a gospel-centered church. Every week, no matter how, what angle we start with or what angle we are talking about, what subject we're talking about, it's all going to come back to Jesus and the story of Jesus and the encouragement to follow Jesus. So if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to commit your life to Jesus, to respond in whatever format you're watching or listening, uh, including you can just text the word yes to 603-225-2550, our church number. Let us know that you're making this decision because we want to be able to celebrate it and we also want to be able to resource you for your new life in Christ. That's the core of our message. Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for us. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. So I really struggled with what was the the right application to make, the right challenge to give to you this week. Uh, Because this can hit in so many different ways. I want to make sure that that we respond in some way. 
but I'm going to leave the response up to you. And I just want you to think about it. You probably already know because I trust that the Holy Spirit is at work and, and speaking to your heart right now. You know how you need to respond. For some, it might be responding in faith for the first time, recognizing that Jesus is who he said he is. That uh, for some, it might be recognizing, you know, I've made my faith about something else. I've been focused on something else and I need to bring the focus back on Jesus. For others, you might be recognizing for the first time that the whole point of church is not to get you to try harder, but to surrender, to give up your life uh, to Jesus and say, I can't do what I need to do. I could never earn your approval. I'm dependent upon what you did on the cross. For others, it might be recognizing that your message, when you talk to others, when uh, you're talking about faith, you don't make it about church or your pastor or the people that you encounter there, that really the whole point is to draw them to Jesus. So make sure that our words, the story that we tell is focused on Jesus. There are probably all kinds of different applications that could be made. However, I'm going to leave that to you, but let's make sure that we focus on the, the gospel is good news not good advice, and it's about Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the good news that we can't and never could earn our way into your good graces, but that Jesus has done everything necessary in order to make it so that we could be adopted into your family and be citizens of the kingdom of God. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each heart. Show us exactly what we need to do with what we've heard today. And then give us the courage, faith, and faithfulness to respond actively, faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.